Colin, it's froth. Um, first, I don't know. Maybe I missed it. It's gotta be recent though. Your new, uh, like logo avatar for your podcast looks great. I love it. I, I, that's awesome. Really sharp looking, uh, really pro makes me want to do something different, uh, or upgrade mine. Um, so that's cool. And then I love listening to, uh, the Cody's call in, uh, getting you talking about the garden stuff. I love that. Especially like, I know you said it's a trope and it is like in fiction stuff, but I've never played a game where all the, uh, PCs got, you know, miniaturized and everything. And that could be really good because, uh, all of a sudden, you know, even common, you know, like a bunny rabbit <laughs> becomes a monster, you know? So that gave me some ideas, but good stuff. Good stuff. See ya. Hello, hello. I'm Colin Green, and you are listening to Spike Pit. Hey, Colin. Arlen Walker, live from Pelham's Wasteland. First off, I wanted to say that I was going to send in a message, and then my response grew way too long, and so I just did a podcast episode about how random tables are are not at all a crutch for bad GMs and are actually a really theoretically interesting type of storytelling and they tie into some some interesting um, stuff with um, structuralism and literary theory and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I don't know if you have listened to that episode of the podcast or not, but if you have not, you might be interested in that. I also wanted to talk a little bit about gardening because there is a sort of tradition within um, mythology and history about kind of royalty and the way that um, things grow in an orderly way versus growing in a disorderly way when there is chaos. And and I think there's some really interesting stuff you can do in stories with um, themes and um, vegetation and atmosphere and all that sort of stuff. And there's something kind of um, instinctive and it, it sort of speaks to people on an ancestral level almost to see, for instance, the difference between a cultivated garden and a garden that has been cultivated, but in such a way that it appears uncultivated and a completely overgrown area of vegetation and all of that sort of stuff. And that you can do really interesting things with that thematically because it, it speaks to people on such a, a deep level level. Um, and specifically, I wanted to talk about a short story that I wrote when I was in college that involved a planet full of robots that did not have any type of spaceship capacity. So they were, were stuck on this planet, um, but they didn't have any real like needs. Those part of the idea was that they, they didn't have like they didn't have to eat or grow food or they didn't need a societal structure to provide food for them or to provide them shelter or stuff. Cause they were robots. They're, they're tough. Um, and so what they did was basically whatever they felt like. And for the most part, that was doing all sorts of things like telling stories and um, painting pictures and sculpt, making sculptures and gardening and gardening was a really big thing. And um, at one point, the, the king of the robots, who is king for a year and then is sacrificed to their um, sort of eschatological prophetic dream that they all have. It's complicated. But basically, 
basically the king of the robots was like a like a terminator who spent all his time gardening and i thought that was just such a cool idea um and really ties into sort of ideas about leadership in a lot of ways and like i said i think there is something kind of um that speaks to people on an instinctual level about um theme with theme and atmosphere and the the vegetable world for lack of a better term um and so this idea of a robot king who gardens was i think a really interesting um character in this story but um yeah, I wanted to say the gardening stuff is really cool. It's really cool to hear about. And I, I guess I wanted to share that I think you can do really a bunch of really interesting things with gardening and with plant material in storytelling and in role-playing games. Hey, Colin. I'm listening to your most recent episode, and I have to tell you, my son loves Mouse Guard. My husband discovered it and shared it with him, and he just loves that game. There's another game, is it called Mice and Mystics, maybe? I think that might be what it's called. There's another game that someone used to run uh, at the cons, and my son would go with my husband, and he absolutely loved to play that game. I love Cody's idea of things coming to life in the garden, and you know I never thought about like those English gardens with statues and everything, but that is so cool. That would be such an interesting place to base a story. Now you've got the wheels turning. <laughs> Have a good one. A hat-trick of call-ins, Liren, Arlen, and Jeremy, a.k.a. Froth. Great call-ins, really loved them, found them inspiring enough for me to put this episode together yes have you spotted it the common theme is gardening now i've got another interesting calling and this is a little bit different check it out hi colin pete jones here thanks for your calling with the unboxing so i'm going to do a different calling to you i'm going to create a creature for you using james Rackey's random esoteric creature generator so here we go the monster starts off one die four plus two hit dice so that is six hit dice and armor class 10. so let's see the basic body shape oh it's a biped so the creature we're creating walks upright now let's see what basic characteristics it's got four oh that's avian so we're looking at a, a bird uh, it's got one dice plus four added to its armor class so that's uh, three so we're now up to armor class 13 um, how big is it let's see uh, oh bird sorry bird type we need to say what bird it is so five so it's a crane so on to part two how big is this crane bird we're creating oh 15 it's huge so that's going to add plus two to its hit dice so we're up to an eight hit dice crane now what sort of attack does it do? Let's have a look. A six. Oh, it's bite. So I'm going to say it's got a razor sharp beak. Distinctive features. Wow, 43, 43. It's on fire. So when it attacks you, it can splash you like burning oil and you may catch fire. This is great stuff. This is great stuff. Let's see what special abilities it's got. Uh, 
Oh, special abilities. It can hear through walls. It can hear everything within 50 foot, even through barriers. So it's got super high hearing. What are its combat tactics? Oh, it attacks random foes each round. So that's great. It's going to be a bit mad. We'll do a Jackson onto a third one. So let's get on to the third part of this message. So we've got its combat tactics. Let's see what its motivation is for being in this world. A six. Oh, it uh, likes to mate. It's mating through reproduction of sexual contact with humans. So I'm going to say that this crane jumps on you when it attacks you and it's going to lay an egg in the middle of your spine so you can't get to it and that's how it reproduces. So we've got this creature now. It's a crane, a huge crane with a, attacks with a bite. It's on fire. It's got super great hearing. It attacks random foes and it lays eggs in your back. So what we're going to call this monster? It's going to be the Spyco Crane. And that was Pete from The Amazing Dragons Are Real. I met Pete at the UK Games Expo and uh, we've been exchanging call-ins. This latest one is really pushing the envelope with his randomly generated monster there. And uh, uh, a cheekily named chap it is too. Can't think where he got that idea from. But a perfect inhabitant for the next place I want to talk about I'm going to have a little bit of a delve through the Gardens of Yin. So I want to talk a little bit about the Gardens of Yin by Emmy Cave Girl Allen. And I'm going to start off by reading a, a small section from her introduction. I wrote this to get out of a creative rut. Liked what I produced and made it pretty. I think it's easy for games to push in darker directions and to match the unpredictable lethality of old school games with a particular grim and gritty aesthetic. I wanted to move away from that into something that, while not blandly pleasant, had a lightness of tone to it, a setting where sunshine is the default weather. Emmy goes on to explain, in structure, this is a little bigger than a dungeon you breeze through in a few sessions, but not really big or settled enough to be the whole setting for an extensive campaign. Bolt Yin onto your setting and it forms an adventure site that PCs can venture into whenever they want. Each time they go in, you procedurally generate a point crawl for them to explore, with stuff getting weirder the deeper they go. You build up a network of interesting sites and the links between them. Each journey is different. Now, I really like this idea of yin. It's a perpendicular world. It crosses the world of the game. And the further you journey in yin, the further you travel away from your previous course. Remember, we're perpendicular. And the larger the, the difference between your place in yin and a world of your previous reality. So Yin, it's this vast garden, now untended, overrun and fallen into ruin. This all happened owing to a psychological apocalypse and something called the idea of thorns that spread through the garden and warped minds and the structures of reality itself. The madness still lingers, but is dormant. 
The process of getting to yin is simple for those in the know. In any garden, in any place where there is a garden, find a wall covered in ivy, vines, moss or similar, clear the vegetation away and using chalk and charcoal, draw a realistic door. You've got to include a keyhole, hinges and a doorknob. On the surface of the drawing, you then write upon the door yin by way of the current location. You substitute your current location. And then you leave, cover up the drawing so it's no longer visible. And then on return, the drawing will be replaced by a real door. When it's opened, the gardens of yin will be on the other side. Everybody in town is gossiping about Mad Hetty, who drew a doorway, went through to the world of the fairies and never came back. That is one of the entries on a six-entry random table, and it's a, a way of getting some information across to your PCs about the potential existence of the Gardens of Yin. Let's assume our characters have taken the hook, They've gone in there. We're going to roll on the locations table. It's a roll. Uh, it's a D20 table plus your depth within the garden. Now, as we're just getting in there, that's going to be a straight roll with no depth. We get a two, which is the herb garden. We also roll on the details table. Once again, a D20 roll. We get an 11. That is steel frames. turn into section two of the book we find the description of the locations herb garden neat rows of exotic herbs in raised beds gone to seed and overflowing their allotted space into the brick paths between d6 plus depth herbs will with useful properties grow in here and you will find d6 plus depth doses of each herb can be harvested so we roll a d10 uh, some of the things you might find are psychedelic, instantly rememorize a spell cast today, or vomiting for D4 rounds, no save, taste really nice, each dose worth 10 silver, and so on and so forth. You've got a 1 in 6 chance to identify a plant's effects from pre-existing knowledge, except for characters with improved chance at survival skills who get to use that chance instead, otherwise identified by trial and error. So a nice little description there. We are intending to work in with that some steel frames, as that was the detail of this location. For this, we move to section three, location details. We look up steel frames and read the following description. Jutting from the ground are huge steel girders, big enough to be the structural supports for some weirdly curved skyscraper. Twisted and bent in odd ways, like the hand of God wrung the tower like a towel, and then everything but the girders were removed, leaving only the metal frame. So a bit of flavour text there. Some of these entries have got kind of like a little sub table in there a bit like the herb garden some of them are just some description like this now if the players kind of engage with this location and, and start to have a look around then we're going to head over to the events table and events are rolled up every turn 
At this point, flicking through the book to get to the events table, I'd just like to mention that the art is public domain art, but it's well chosen and kind of co cohesive in it in its style. Um, I think the authors made a good job of selecting the pieces to go into the book. Here we are then, the events table on page 12. Let's have a look at 16. We get a 16 on the D20, a set of steps leading to a subterranean passageway. The passage is lined with black and white tiles and lit with candles. It leads somewhere else on the map. Draw a line leading to a previously explored location, ideally one less deep than the current location. Uh, so that's a kind of freaky. So you're going down, but you're actually going to find yourself kind of going up. I'm guessing that is to kind of uh, add to the weirdness of it all. Let's have another look. Uh, if so, we'd rolled an 11. We find tracks, litter or other signs of passage are found. Roll an encounter to see what left them. The next encounter in this location will be with that. For your encounters then, you've got two tables, one for daytime encounters, one for nighttime encounters. They're both roll 20 and add the depth. And there are 35 entries on each. Let's have a look at those. Yeah, it looks like the table gets more serious the further you go down. And that's just my gut feeling looking at that. Yeah. So entry one is a black cat on both tables. And then you get down to entry 33 on both tables is the idea of thorns, which is that uh, the psychological virus type thing that kicked all this off, if you recall, in the introduction. So I think we need to take a look at the bestiary, which is section four. As I flick through to section four, it occurs to me, I should point out there are other rules, such as running blindly, which explains what happens if characters take flight and, and lose track of their, their position. You've got rules for camping. Mostly that talks about how you change the passage of time uh, into a couple of cycle so you've got like a day cycle and a night cycle like a wake sleep cycle then there's rules for handling magic in yin how it works moving between locations life in yin and the structure of yin before moving on to the bestiary i just want to pause to look at the section on the inhabitants i'm going to read a short section there are birds in Yin. The sound of their gentle bird song is a constant feature, but they're almost always out of sight. The song constantly comes from just over the horizon. There are insects here, delicate, pretty little things, all bright and shiny. They grow bigger than normal, but not much so. Beetles the size of a coin are common, as are butterflies and dragonflies the size of a saucer. Other things living here are less benign. Many are the products of magically created plants and pets left to evolve and go wild. 
Imagine the peacocks that mill about formal gardens. Now, imagine if they've gone feral, grown to the size of mowers. Mutated to grow little teeth in their beaks, long curved claws, predatory intelligence, but still the regal, lustrous creatures they were before. Elegance and floral beauty stretched into exotic, monstrous things. And there we move to the bestiary. Maybe I'm easily pleased, I don't know, but I like this bestiary quite a lot. There's a whole bunch of stuff in here, just the sort of things I'm imagining I might find. There's some surprises in there as well. But the uh, let's take the first example, the black cat. Once a witch is familiar, the witch is long dead, the cat remains. Can talk, is intelligent and knows a good, good deal about what you might encounter. So the stats are HD1, HP1, armor as unarmored, bite, one damage, save as fighter one. If it would die, instead survives through incredible luck. Can do this eight times, the ninth time, death is real. <laughs> so there you go, your cat with nine lives, I quite like that. What else we've got? Shadow, a sentient animated shadow, ripped from a person who now casts no shade. Hates, but paradoxically fascinated by light and warmth. Doesn't attack you physically, rather tears at your shadow and the wounds appear on you. Hit dice 2, hit points 12, armour as chain, intangible claws, does d4 plus 2 damage and 1 charisma damage. Save as fighter 2, intangible and immune to physical damage. Bright light does d6 damage around, dead victims transform into more shadows. Are you liking this? I'm liking this. Then we've got uh, plant skeletons. Skeletons interwoven and animated with vines and creepers. The skeletons are just the framework. The real creature is the plant sprouting from between its ribs. AC is leather, one hit dies, four hit points. Claws, D6, save as fighter one. It's undead and those killed reanimate as plant skeletons a turn later. So there is a bunch of stuff like that in here. Some of them are quite weird. We've got myconid composters. So that's your kind of compost heap. A golem gardener. Rust bumblebees. Glass butler. There's actually a chest set in here with the different pieces statted out. Like, uh, you know, those big uh, garden chest sets that you get. Um, the likes of... Is it Alice in Wonderland with the chest set? Uh, crops up all the time there's a dream in there then you've got these animal servants you've got frog servants ferret servants fish servants so the frog servants are frogs enhanced to be able to act like humans again mimic intelligence without really possessing it long-limbed frogs stood on their hind legs dressed in a servant's outfit talks a lot but is mostly rubbish incurably stupid <laughs> Sounds like a spike pit. Now I could go on reading these things forever, so I won't. We'll move on to the final part, part five, useful tables. Looking at the tables, there is a bunch of them. I'm going to read out the different headings. Mostly they uh, tending to be a D20 table, so kick it off with horticultural styles, then unusual flora, yinian alterations... This is kind of like a 
mutation thing, is it? Yeah, largely. Then cosmetic alterations. Then there's like a treasure table with such goodies as an enchanted fish hook. Any being that swallows a hook is unable to act against the person holding the other end of the fishing line in any way. That's uh, There's 35 of those. Then there's some random weapons on a D12. Uh, weapon abilities. Fairly standard stuff, although there is an electrified weapon. Life leeching. Double damage versus plants could be handy. And then we've got an eye search, the body table, which is a D30. And I search the flower bed, which is also a D30. What can we find on the body? Padlock, secateurs, wouldn't be in the garden without your secateurs. A beetle preserved in glass. Then searching the fat flower bed, what can you find there? Patch of strawberries, a felling axe, still stuck into a tree trunk that now grows around it. A garden gnome. Obviously there's a garden gnome. Jam jar full of angry bees. Cool. Then we've got stored food, foraged food, rumours in yin, dreams and portents in yin. Uh, with uh, some explanation of that. And then there's closing out the book, the idea of thorns reaches the real world and it kind of explains what could happen. That's about it then. So there you go. I'm not going to keep pulling bits out and reading them off to you. I think if you're interested... I've done enough to give you a little bit of the flavour. There's obviously a lot more there. It's about £3.94, I believe, as a PDF over on Drive-Thru RPG. I haven't run it, but in summary, I really enjoy it. I, I, it appeals to me partly because I'm a gardener, admittedly, and and the, the fantasy garden is a theme that interests me, hence this episode hope you've enjoyed it thanks for listening take care and i'll catch you later